Well, good morning. Y'all are brave souls to come out. Um, Will Albritton came and picked me up from the hotel earlier this morning, and I asked him if he, was, if he had something with a hole. Um, it, it was raining hard at that point. It is a privilege to be here, and, and I will say um, the video about the cricket tournament didn't work the first service, so I just saw it for the first time, but that is really cool. That's a wonderful thing y'all are doing. I played intramural cricket at Ole Miss. Just kidding. Um, <clears throat> I don't think cricket's ever been played at Ole Miss, actually. But um, it really is a neat way to uh, just love your neighbor, I guess is the best way to put it. It is always odd to kind of show up somewhere where you usually are not and just to kind of, you know, drive in and speak a little bit and then leave. Um, but it's a privilege to be here in particular because uh, as a guy who went to Ole Miss uh, for years, I've known people who went to church here and have been impacted. We had people in our church in Birmingham, uh, including the Nayland family that many of you know, um, who love this church dearly and have been ministered to to this day uh, by you. And I, I literally had never been to the church. I've heard so much about it. I've talked with Jimmy before. and. Um, bottom line, it's, it's wonderful to be here. I'm sorry I don't have a voice like Jimmy's, but no one has a voice like Jimmy's. And um, so, but um, thank you for the privilege of sharing uh, with you this morning. I'm, I'm going to read to you, I'm going to refer to four different passages. So I'm going to read to you at first from Isaiah 43 in a few minutes here. And that'll be kind of the, the gateway but uh, I'm, I'm going to refer to three other passages to help us unpack and understand and apply what's being talked about in Isaiah. I chose a passage from Isaiah because when I looked at what y'all had been doing, you've been majoring on the Old Testament, Jeremiah mainly, I know, but then I saw someone recently was here who preached from Isaiah. And so I thought as we lead up to Easter here, um, the passages we'll be looking at today, uh, very much you'll see, have an Easter kind of theme to them. Uh, quick context uh, for us as well, because everything you do as a pastor or a preacher has your own life behind it. And uh, so in many ways, all I'm doing is sharing with you what I'm learning, uh, which means also what I'm struggling with, wrestling I, as the Apostle Paul says, I do not come to you as one who's already obtained these things, but as one who is seeking to press on to know Christ and to know him more fully. Uh, we are in the process uh, of moving, as Jonathan said, to North Carolina, where we've never lived before. And so that involves selling your house. And you, you catch us right in the middle. Uh, our house has been on the market for, I believe, it's 27 days now. And it's one of those deals where, you know, when you put your house on the market, you hope that there's going to be a line of people who love it even more than you do and who um, they want a new house and they want you to make money off of your house. And so far that person hasn't come by, <clears throat> but we're praying for them. And, uh, but uh, matter of fact, we may spend the whole time this morning, all of us in prayer for that. Um, but uh, and no, Martha and I have, have looked at each other and, and gone, you know, in, in many ways, and, and we've prayed to the Lord and continue to think, Lord, you know, if you will just sell the house, then we can breathe deeply, right? 
And we've also said to each other, you know, this is, in our minds, in our heads, we know that that's not true. But what it feels like is if we can just sell the house, you know, then we'll be on to the next thing, kind of like. But the truth is there'll always be a thing like the sale of the house. This side of the fall and this side of heaven, there's always something going on that makes you feel like you're in the desert. It makes you feel like you're wandering in the wilderness and you're kind of going, man, if I can just make it to the next oasis, we'll survive. You know, and then life will be good after that, right? And that's not true, is it? It's not that things like the sale of a house are unimportant. It's just that at the end of the day, they really are not what bring peace. Nor do they bring joy in the deep kind of way the Bible talks about it. And they don't actually fix things. They're not unimportant, but it's easy to make them the most important thing or for them to feel like they're the most important thing. And everything we talk about today is going to be with that in mind. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 43. Thus says the Lord. Oh, one other thing. This is written to Israel. Israel's familiar with the wilderness just as we are. From Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned and the Lord ushered them out of the garden into the wilderness, to Israel being in captivity and feeling like it was in the desert, being enslaved to Pharaoh, and then Israel being delivered, but then wandering around the desert, the wilderness, for a whole generation. And now, once again, Israel is in the wilderness, except this time the wilderness they're in is is a city. It's Babylon and the surrounding area. They are a stranger in a strange land. And the Lord is coming to them, and through the prophet Isaiah, he's saying, Isaiah, I want you to tell them I've not forgotten you. And though you may feel like the only thing we need is to get out of Babylon and get back home, the Lord is saying, Don't try to construct your own salvation, especially in your own mind. Trust me. Because I have a larger salvation in mind than you have. And I am able to do things that you would actually never ask for. And those are the things you actually need. So here, Isaiah 43. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Now he's bringing to their minds what? Their removal out of Egypt to the promised land. The Lord parting the waters and then covering over Pharaoh's army. So he brings that to mind. Now listen to what the Lord says to these people. Do not remember the former thing. Do not consider the things of old, for I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? 
I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, in order to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself so that they might declare my praise. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our Lord stands forever. Heavenly Father, please grant us Father, ears to hear, hearts to understand. Give me words to speak that you might be honored and that we might be edified by your word through your spirit. Amen. Like I said, there's a lot of uh, talk in the Bible about the wilderness. And the number one reason is this. When Adam and Eve were ushered out of the garden, which a garden, of course, is the opposite of the wilderness, right? It's the opposite of the desert. It's a place flowing with water, you know? I grew up in South Mississippi, Hattiesburg. It gets 85 inches of rain a year, which technically qualifies it to be a rainforest. You know, the problem is not getting things to grow. That's not the problem. It's the opposite problem. But in the Bible... Once Adam and Eve have fallen, the Lord ushers them out of the garden into the wilderness for their own benefit. And one of the reasons is this. He wants their surroundings to be a reminder of a deeper issue. And this is always the case with the theme of the wilderness or the desert in the Scripture. When God says, I'm going to make rivers flow in the desert, when God says, I'm going to make a way for you in the wilderness. He's talking to anyone and everyone who's ever lived after the fall. But what he means is not simply, you know, if you live in Arizona, I'm going to turn your house into an oasis. What he means is this. It's not just the land. It's the heart of man that has been most affected by the fall. So much so that hearts that are designed to be supple and to be places thriving and, and, and growing and flowing with the love of God. People who are meant to reflect God or meant to be his very image, God says what's happened is your hearts have dried up. And outside of my help, the only thing you will ever have is a parched land from which to live. But I want you to know that's not the last word. In this passage, the Lord is saying to Israel, Israel, you think you're done with, you're in Babylon, and I want you to know right where you are in the wilderness, in the desert, in the midst of a strange people, I am able to send water. In other words, I'm able to do a work in you. Notice the promise right here is not, guess what? I'm going to knock the door down and bring you back to your house, you know, to where the land you came from. He is going to do that, but that's not really the promise. In other words, the promise is not I'm going to change your circumstances. The promise is this, I'm going to change you. 
the truth is all of us know what it's like to live in the wilderness and we know what it's like to live in the desert um, I've joked with my family with the church we served in Birmingham and elsewhere before that if I ever get a tattoo uh, the tattoo I don't have a tattoo by the way um, Martha's nervous because I'm 51 you know midlife men do things like that but um, I said if I ever get one I'm going to get how long because I don't think you would ever regret having it it never goes out of style but you know what the wilderness is like if you've ever prayed how long or let me put it differently everyone in this room is experiencing living in the wilderness in some way this moment and it's those things that have you saying Lord how long I mean, it could be your job. We've lived in Birmingham for eight years. Birmingham's a city full of lawyers. This is true. I've only met with one lawyer in my 25 years as a minister who said he liked what he did. But I cannot tell you how many lawyers have made appointments with me because they wanted to talk about the fact that they went to law school and they got a job with a big law firm and they're making a lot of money and they don't know what to do because they absolutely feel trapped they're in the desert they're in the wilderness and they see no way out there's always something going on that makes us go lord where's the way out let me tell you how you know that you've been in the desert for a while. I want to read to you a similar but different passage. It's Psalm 126. You can turn there or you can just listen. But in Psalm 126, one of the Psalms of Ascent that was designed for Israel to chant as they would go together once a year to, up to Jerusalem. And this is how it reads. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we rejoice. Here's how you know you've been in the wilderness a long time. You hear those words, and deep down, or maybe not so deep down, you say, whatever. I mean, maybe for someone else. The Apostle Paul is a guy who had a very interesting experience in life in that he was raised in many ways with a silver spoon. And he was not a guy, you would say, who had been... Um, kind of familiar with wilderness ways. He, he would have actually probably even told you that. And Paul says something very interesting that you've probably heard before to the church in Philippi. He says this. He says, look, if anyone ever had reason to be confident in the flesh, I had more. And this is what Paul means by that. He says, if anyone ever thought they had no need for God to send water in the wilderness. 
They had no need for God to give them a spring in their backyard. Their backyard was a spring. Matter of fact, it was like they lived in the middle of an oasis, and they were the king of the oasis. Paul says, that was me. I wasn't the needy guy. There were others who were needy. He says, matter of fact, here's the list, you know. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. In other words, I had the lineage. I was a blue blood. Not only that, as for the law, a Pharisee, which means this, he was a part of the ruling class. In other words, he had control and he had clout. He had respect. As for zeal, a persecutor of the church. Put it this way, have you ever met, you know, someone who was a Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger? You know, these guys are bad to the bone. Uh, you don't want to meet them in a dark alley, you know, because they know how to get things done, and they know how to do it quickly and without anyone ever detecting that someone was there. That was Paul. He was a Navy SEAL for the church. If someone was making trouble in the church, he knew how to take care of it, which is what he did with the early Christian movement. He would just go around and arrest people and have them killed. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But Paul said this to the church in Philippi. He said, whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let me translate that for you. Paul said, guess what? It took a while. And it took God bringing me to my knees in a very particular way. But here's what I learned. It was all not an oasis, it was a mirage. What I thought was stable was not stable. What I thought was concrete was really sand. What I thought was glory was really just plastic and glitter and glue. Everything I thought was important, I now realize, was a mirage. It's what gave me my identity, but now I realize they were the things that were actually keeping me from knowing God and his renewing power. I didn't think I needed water in the wilderness. I didn't think I needed anything. Why? Because I was so religious, says Paul. And because I had knit together my religion and my calling and my way of life in such a way that I had it all. You know? I know you. We're the same. You know, we're kind of upwardly mobile, middle to lower upper class kind of people who are educated and have cars and a home or homes, plural. And, um, you know, we're kind of Lake Wobegon people. All of our children are above average, right?
our goal is to be like the eugenics guy on the commercial. If you've ever seen the guy who's like 75 and he looks like he's, you know, 32 and just ran a marathon, you know. That's who we are, right? In and of themselves, those things are not necessarily bad. They can even be good. But they can also be ways of avoiding God. In other words, it's possible to try to make our lives really, really garden-like so that we don't have to deal with the wilderness that is our heart. And I would tell you that as Americans of a particular persuasion and kind of place in society, we are really, really good at that. We make it look easy. We make it look like anybody ought to be able to do this, you know. But the Apostle Paul says, look, I know what it's like to be in the desert and not realize it. I know what it's like to be in the wilderness and not even know there are actually animals around looking to eat you. And Paul says, the only way I ever came to see that everything I thought was stable around me was actually a mirage is that Jesus took hold of me in a very particular way and by the power of his spirit he renewed me and this is what Paul says the result of that is now I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection everybody says amen to this right and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Let me read that again. I've never seen this needle pointed, by the way. You know? I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, and not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Let me translate that for us. Paul says, you know what? I used to be scared to death of the desert. I used to be scared to death of the wilderness, and I didn't even know it. He says, but I've learned something. There's nothing to be scared about. I was in the wilderness the whole time. I didn't even know it. But now that I see where I was, actually, I go to the wilderness now. I now go to the have-nots because I want them to know that we serve the God who is not for the righteous but the unrighteous. We serve the God not for people with a healthy heart but with a withered heart. And he is the God who can do what he did for me. He makes water 
flow in desert places. Translated, he does the impossible. Paul said it. He literally said, I want to know one thing, that is Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I want to be like him in his crucifixion. He says that. I don't even know what all he means by that. The truth is, I don't want to think about that a lot because I think what he means is, I don't want to have confidence in anything other than Christ. And I kind of go, well, if you start saying stuff like that, I mean, the next thing you know, I mean, who knows what you might end up doing. I mean, great Scott, you might end up loving your neighbor in some radical way. I want to give you one other passage to think about. Again, to meditate on with me. It's such a wonderful passage. It's also kind of scary. As we move toward Easter, one of the passages, you know, part of what we read in the scriptures is Jesus' path toward Jerusalem. And just before Jesus got to Jerusalem, the Apostle John is chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. John says this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. This is kind of cool. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. What do you say about this? Uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And now, I don't know where he, all he's been. I mean, he's been moving in the area. But now he's back. He's in Bethany. And he's in Lazarus's house. He's at Mary and Martha's house. Lazarus is their brother, right? And this is what we read. Mary and Martha gave a dinner for Jesus. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. He had been in the graves. And now he's at the table eating supper with Jesus, and everybody there knows it. And Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, and by the way, other uh, gospel writers tell us it wasn't just Judas that the disciples joined in with him in this. Jesus says, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Which A, he knew what it was worth, and B, it was worth a lot. 300 denarii is 300 days wages, so it's over three quarters of a year's salary. Significant. John says, Jesus cared about this because Jesus used to put his hand in the purse and use it for his own benefit. And Jesus says, leave her alone. Which, by the way, when he says that, he isn't just talking to Judas. He's talking to Satan. Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. He's already putting Satan on notice. And then he says to the disciples, you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So here's the deal. 
Did you know that it's possible for the waters of God's grace to flow at such a rate and a proportion in your own heart that you will take whatever it is you have of value and whatever it is that you consider to be your glory and you will place it at Jesus' feet for his service because that's what Mary does here. The best explanation I've ever read about this is a commentator who said what Mary does here is she takes what's most valuable money-wise and also just object-wise because very few people not only can afford it but just have nard, spiked nard is what it was called, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, which is very odd. She's anointing him the same way a king would be, except you anoint kings on their head. She's anointing his feet, and the only time you would anoint feet is when you're dealing with a dead body. There's a lot going on here. And yet, instead of the smell of death, there's the smell of wonder in the house. And then she does this odd thing. She takes her glory which is her hair. Because everyone in that culture knew the glory of a woman was her hair. And that sentiment is reflected all through the scriptures. And she wiped his feet with it. Let me ask you this. What would it mean for you to place that which is most valuable and that which is your glory at the feet of Jesus. You know how people talk about giving up stuff for Lent leading up to Easter? What if you gave things for Easter? And what if what you gave in honor to the Lord, because the way we put things at people's feet is by loving our neighbor. That's how you put things at Jesus' feet our neighbor who's made in his image. What would it mean to take what is of value to you and place it at Jesus' feet for the benefit of your neighbor? What would it mean to take what is your glory, your identity, that which you think makes you look the best, feel the best, have the best, and place it at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, do with all this what you will. I, I want to be really specific here. And by the way, it's very uncomfortable as a, my wife's here and so, you know, we've got to all be honest here, right? What would it mean for me to love my wife in such a way that she would literally, in her mind, I don't mean verbally, I just mean in her mind, go, what in the world has gotten into him? Mike, he is acting like I am God's gift to him. Wives, what would it mean for you to treat your husbands in such a way that they would go, whoa? Like, whoa, I don't deserve this. What would it mean for you? By the way, what you have that's the most valuable thing you have is not your bank account. I don't care how much money you have. This certainly applies to money. Let's throw money away for a minute, though. What would it mean for you to take that which is the most valuable thing you have and place it at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, teach me to steward this. Shape me in such a way that I can live in this relationship or in this situation 
where it will be obvious that you are at work. I mean, it could be your children. It could be your job. It could be your retirement. Can you imagine like middle to upper class Americans going, Lord, take my retirement and do with it what you would have me do with it and do something with it in such a way that people go, I don't know what that has gotten into those people, but they are joyful. In other words, what would it mean for us to be known by our good works? Because we've been raised from the dead. Well, the point of the passage is this. It's possible. (laughs) It actually happens. And it happens when we quit being afraid of suffering. We don't go seek suffering, but we quit spending our lives trying to avoid pain and avoid suffering. And we start saying, Lord, no matter what it is that comes down the pike, enable me to lean into it and see you in it because it's a sharing in Christ's sufferings that I might be more fit to do your will now and forevermore. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you really do make streams flow in the desert, which means that you can actually turn people like us into fearless warriors who wage war with the weapon of love. You can take people who think politics is the most important thing in the world and teach us to love our neighbor. You can take people who are very nervous about our future and make us people who are very thankful for all that you've given us. Father, we pray that you would work in us with all the processes we need in order that we might be conformed to your image and enjoy you now and forever. And we pray in Christ's name.